Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 8th day of March, 2009. I'd like to encourage my listeners, as always, to check into the websites CorbettReport.com and AlQaedaDoesn'tExist.com where you can find previous episodes of this podcast, as well as articles, interviews, and videos created and conducted by The Corbett Report in the past. I'd also like to take a moment to direct my listeners' attention to the Donate button on the homepage of CorbettReport.com. Of course, everyone is feeling the effects of the economic crisis that's taking place right now, including The Corbett Report, and we do require funding to continue our operations, including hosting fees for our website for another year, and also to pay for a new studio microphone upgrade that we just purchased for the site. So once again, any help that you can provide on a monetary basis is much appreciated, and the easiest way to help us is simply to spread the word about this podcast, spread the word about the website, and most importantly of all, spread the word about the information contained herein, so we can continue reaching more and more people and unlocking people's minds in the only revolution that matters, the revolution of the mind taking place right now in the Info War. And on that note, let's get to today's real news. Today's first real news story comes from the Canadian Press, 27th of February, 2009. Baxter. Product contained live bird flu virus. The company that released contaminated flu virus material from a plant in Austria confirmed Friday that the experimental product contained live H5N1 avian flu viruses. And an official of the World Health Organization's European operation said the body is closely monitoring the investigation into the events that took place at Baxter International's research facility in Orthdonau, Austria. At this juncture, we are confident in saying that public health and occupational risk is minimal at present, medical officer Roberta Andragetti said from Copenhagen, Denmark. But what remains unanswered are the circumstances surrounding the incident in the Baxter facility in Orthdonau. The contaminated product, a mix of H3N2 seasonal flu viruses and unlabeled H5N1 viruses, was supplied to an Austrian research company. The Austrian firm, Aver Green Hills Biotechnology, then sent portions of it to subcontractors in the Czech Republic, Slovenia, and Germany. The contamination incident, which is being investigated by the four European countries, came to light when the subcontractor in the Czech Republic inoculated ferrets with the product and they died. Ferrets shouldn't die from exposure to human H3N2 flu viruses. Our second real news story today comes from naturalnews.com, Tuesday, March 3rd, 2009. Vaccines as Biological Weapons Live Avian Flu Virus Placed in Baxter Vaccine Materials Sent to 18 Countries There's a popular medical thriller novel in which a global pandemic is intentionally set off by an evil plot designed to reduce the human population. In the book, 
A nefarious drug company inserts live avian flu viruses into vaccine materials that are distributed to countries around the world to be injected into patients as flu shots. Those patients then become carriers for these highly virulent strains of avian flu, which go on to infect the world population and cause widespread death. There's only one problem with this story. It's not fiction or at least the part about live avian flu viruses being inserted into vaccine materials isn't fiction. It's happening right now. Deerfield, Illinois-based pharmaceutical company Baxter International Inc. has just been caught shipping live avian flu viruses mixed with vaccine material to medical distributors in 18 countries. The mistake, if you can call it that, was discovered by the National Microbiology Laboratory in Canada. The World Health Organization was alerted, and panic spread throughout the vaccine community as health experts asked the obvious question, how could this have happened? As published on LifeGen.de, serious questions like this are being raised. Baxter International Inc. in Austria unintentionally contaminated samples with the bird flu virus that were used in laboratories in three neighboring countries, raising concern about the potential spread of the deadly disease. Austria, Germany, Slovenia, and the Czech Republic. These are the countries in which labs were hit with dangerous viruses. Not by bioterrorist commandos, but by Baxter. In other words, one of the major global pharmaceutical players seems to have lost control over a virus, which is considered by many virologists to be one of the components leading someday to a new pandemic. Or, put another way, Baxter is acting a whole lot like a biological terrorism organization these days, sending deadly viral samples around the world. If you mail an envelope full of anthrax to your senator, you get arrested as a terrorist. So why is Baxter, which mailed samples of a far more deadly viral strain to labs around the world, getting away with saying, essentially, oops? But there's a bigger question in all this. How could this company have accidentally mixed live avian flu viruses, both H5N1 and H3N2, the human form, in this vaccine material? The shocking answer is that this couldn't have been an accident. Why? Because Baxter International adheres to something called BSL-3, Biosafety Level 3, a set of laboratory safety protocols that prevent the cross-contamination of materials. Our final real news story today comes from Infowars.com, March 5, 2009. Accidental contamination of vaccine with live avian flu virus virtually impossible. Czech newspapers are questioning if the shocking discovery of vaccines contaminated with the deadly avian flu virus which were distributed to 18 countries by the American company Baxter were part of a conspiracy to provoke a pandemic. The claim holds weight because, according to the very laboratory protocols that are routine for vaccine makers, mixing a live virus biological weapon with vaccine material by accident is virtually impossible. The company that released contaminated flu virus material from a plant in Austria confirmed Friday that the experimental product contained live H5N1 avian flu viruses, reports the Canadian press. 
Baxter flu vaccines contaminated with H5N1, otherwise known as the human form of avian flu, one of the most deadly biological weapons on Earth with a 60% kill rate, were received by labs in the Czech Republic, Germany, and Slovenia. Initially, Baxter attempted to stonewall questions by invoking trade secrets and refused to reveal how the vaccines were contaminated with H5N1. After increased pressure, they then claimed that pure H5N1 batches were sent by accident. This was seemingly an attempt to quickly change the story and hide the fact that the accidental contamination of a vaccine with a deadly biological agent like avian flu is virtually impossible. And the only way it could have happened was by willful, gross, criminal negligence. The fact that Baxter mixed the deadly H5N1 virus with a mix of H3N2 seasonal flu viruses is the smoking gun. The H5N1 virus on its own has killed hundreds of people, but it is less airborne and more restricted in the ease with which it can spread. However, when combined with seasonal flu viruses, which as everyone knows are super airborne and easily spread, the effect is a potent, super airborne, super deadly, biological weapon. Hello. <laughs> My name is Tzibayot from the house of Tzibayot of Bajida, meaning um, I'm from Port Renfro, <laughs> Vancouver Island. At age five, I was kidnapped by terrorists in a gunboat. The RCMP had this gunboat. It was a RCMP boat with a gun mounted on it to gather children from villages. There was uh, three boats when they came for for us. I was working. I was looking after this uh, lady who had rheumatoid arthritis, and she told me to uh, hide under her porch. So I w- I went on. Um, a cord of wood on top of a cord of wood I thought I was safe but they found me pulled me off there put me on a fishing boat with my sister hmm. my name is Nankeska I come from the people of Haida Gwaii my English name is Douglas Wilson in academic circles I'm known as Dr. Douglas Wilson <clears throat> I'm a survivor of the Edmonton Indian Residential School. I was there from 1957 to 1961. <clears throat> My memory of that um, experience is incredibly negative. But I'll start first of a memory. I read Kevin Annette's document starting about six months ago, and it helped me understand how come my memory <coughs> wasn't, was so vague. In reading parts of it, they talked about shock treatment. So I'll start with the shock treatment, then go back to the beginning, 
of what happened to me, of what I can recall. In my last year there, the spring of the of 1961, I was taken from the school to Charles Campbell Indian Hospital, and from Charles Campbell Indian Hospital to Panoka Mental Institute. <coughs> I don't know if I was there a week or two weeks, but I have vague memories of it. But the the memory that flashed back for me is laying on this table in stuff in my head and then these flashing lights just continually. And when I recalled that memory, <clears throat> I got really lightheaded for two or three weeks, just trying to figure out what that was all about. <clears throat> My understanding of it after talking to a psychologist and a couple of doctor friends of mine, of what they used for shock treatments in the early 60s, and that's what it was. Okay, my name is Tiesat. My given name is Sarah. My maiden name is Ryan. My mother's uh, name is Wilson. And my um, married name is Modest. So I'm Sarah Modest today. I was born in 1933. And I didn't go to school um, until I was nine years old. Um, my experience with uh, Dr. Goodbrand uh, started from my marriage. Like uh, before our wedding day, we were asked to go and see a doctor. And there's only one doctor. And we weren't allowed to see anybody else, just Dr. Goodbrand. And uh, with my first visit, um, he started to tell me that I shouldn't have children with Fred. And I asked him why. And he said, well, he said he's in, he's, um, in a chief line. And he said, that isn't good. So I said, it isn't good for who? And he said, never mind. He says, it just isn't good. And I told him, he says, well, I'm not listening to this. I'm, um, you know, I'm having children anyway. And um, he kept asking, he asked for me to come back. He said, I'll arrange it so that you won't have any children. And I told him, he says, I'm not coming back for, for that kind of a thing. Welcome, my friends, welcome to episode 77 of the Corbett Report, Canada's Genocide. What you have just been listening to are the recorded testimonies of Harriet Nahani, Douglas Wilson, and Sarah Modeste, all Native Canadians who were abducted from their families and forced into the Canadian residential school system in the mid-20th century. The harrowing story of the abuses that they suffered at the hands of the residential school system and the medical and social services that are provided by the Canadian government to Native peoples can be heard in their entirety on the website hiddenfromhistory.org. And of course, for a direct link to all of those MP3 files, you can find that directly from my website, corbettreport.com, under the documentation list for today's episode. Hiddenfromhistory.org 
is the website of Kevin Annette, a former ordained minister of the United Church of Canada, who came to Port Alberni, British Columbia in 1992 to take up the ministry at St. Andrew's United Church. While there, he began to ask probing questions about the segregation of the white and native populations of Port Alberni, and his probing questions ultimately led to the uncovering of some horrific truths. Kevin Annette has tirelessly attempted to document and bring these truths to light over the past two decades, and the results of that labor can be seen in such things as the Hidden from History website, and books like Hidden from History and Love and Death in the Valley, as well as in an award-winning documentary which he produced entitled Unrepentant, Kevin Annette and Canada's Genocide. This documentary, which is available for free on Google Video, and which, of course, I recommend my listeners go and watch in its entirety, documents Kevin Annette's discovery of the horrific genocide of Native peoples in the Canadian residential school system, as well as the testimony of some of the people who survived that genocide, including those that we just heard. Once again, I strongly recommend that my listeners watch that video in its entirety to come to something of an understanding of some of the horrific things which Kevin Annette has uncovered in his two-decade quest to bring the truth about the native genocide to light. But right now, in order to get an introduction to the subject, I'd like to listen to an excerpt from the opening of Unrepentant, which documents Kevin Annette's uncovering of this information and also some of the harrowing testimony of some of the survivors of Canada's genocide. Right now, let's listen to a clip from Unrepentant, Kevin Annette and Canada's Genocide. When God is on our side, we can commit any crime. We're, we're absolved individually from that crime by believing that we have a higher sanction. And that's the danger of religion in that it allows people to do that. It allows them to kill without a shred of conscience. Even in the sunlight, the Alberni Valley was draped in fog that first morning I arrived there in the spring of 1992. Jesus once said that when we welcome the stranger, we're actually welcoming him. But how could I have known that by opening my door to him and to so many others, I'd be closing the door to all that I knew? Nothing was clear to me at first. I felt like I was on the brink of something, like standing on a dock, waiting. What was clear was that I was heading for a job interview at St. Andrew's United Church in Port Alberni, on Canada's west coast, where I hoped to become the minister. When I walked through the doors of that church, I knew there was a deeper purpose that had brought me there. And sure enough, I got the job. There were no Native people in my church when I got there. You know, there was like 20 people in the pews on a Sunday, and they were all white. They were like retired loggers and millwrights, and, and about a third of the population was Native, and... There were no Indians in any of the white churches. There were no Indians working in the stores anywhere. You know, It was just a, a totally apartheid, to, and it still is. It's a very much an apartheid kind of community. And that's actually one of the things that got me interested, just a little anecdote. 
when I went up at the end of the first service, I went up to the chair of my board and I said, you know, Fred, it's kind of odd there aren't any Indians around, you know, like, where are they all? And he got really defensive and he said, well, they keep to themselves, we keep to ourselves and everybody likes it that way. And so when I went out to the, I got called out to the local uh, Seychelles Reserve uh, to actually to conduct a, a wedding a few weeks later. I asked a man uh, who I was marrying, Danny Gus his name was, he was a retired native fisherman and he had gone to the Alberni school. And I asked him kind of innocently why there were no native people in church and he finally said to me, they killed my best friend in the residential school, he's buried in the hill out back and the church people all know it, they don't want us in their church. So it's kind of like right away, bang, it was in my face, this reality, these two worlds living side by side, not just native and white, but um, kind of an official world, the official history, and then the unofficial buried history. But Danny Gus wasn't the only Indian who told me of murders in my church's residential school. In my first year as minister at St. Andrews, I spent most of my time just visiting people and getting to know them. That was my job. And my first job was really to open up my church to as many people as possible, including the native population. In doing that, as more and more people came into the church, I gave them a platform. They began to talk about crimes they witnessed in the Alberni Residential School, which was run by the United Church for over 50 years. And they described children being killed. They described uh, pedophile rings where children were being passed around between the Indian agent and the priest and other people like that. Yeah, I had an open pulpit policy, so after my sermon, people could get up and comment on it or share any of their own thoughts on that. And in the, in the What did the whites do? Well, the whites would get up, you know, occasionally a logger would get up and defend the logging and, and that kind of thing. And, you know, people had the chance to say whatever they wanted. And Native people in their tradition, when to, they have, like, speakers who are officially delegated to talk. And so when, to give an example, there was a man, Alfred Keetla, who got up and, and began praying in his own language in church, which was quite something. It was quite, quite beautiful when he did that. But then as speaker, he began to talk about other things and uh, other people who got up would then share stories of children being murdered in the Alberni Residential School. That was later confirmed um, by a woman called Harriet Nahani, who actually witnessed a murder of a little girl by the principal of the Alberni School in 1946. Well, this fellow who Harriet claims killed a little girl called Maisie Shaw, uh, his name was Alfred Caldwell, and his daughter was right in the congregation. She was part of the old guard of my church. Did you believe it? Well, when people who don't know one another keep telling the same story over and over again, even if you're skeptical, you have to accept the fact that, you know, it's a commonly told story. And when people began to go further and tell me things that I found later being validated in, in documents, then you can't deny it. You know, as a minister, you, lean, you learn to uh, detect bullshit pretty quickly in people. And you can tell in somebody's eyes when, they, when they're suffering, and it's incredibly painful for them to tell a story. They're not making this stuff up. My name's Harry Wilson. My name's Kenny Quittell. My name is Virginia Baptiste. I'm from the Osuyas Indian Band in Oliver, B.C. My name is uh, Harry Lucas. I'm actually 64 years old. My name is Tzibayot from the house of Tzibayot of Ajida. My name is Nankreska. I come from the people of Haida Gwaii. My English name is Douglas Wilson. In academic circles, I'm known as Dr. Douglas Wilson. I went to Port Alberta Residential School 
Somebody else's number, you got whipped for that. We weren't allowed to have books, but we weren't allowed to read. If we were caught reading any kind of a book or a magazine, you uh, you were you were punished. There was a severe punishment that one. The kids who told on us got preferential treatment, whereas the children who sang their songs and spoke their language, were punished constantly for every, any little thing, for even, even for laughing. It was always hard for us to tell one another we love you, because we were taught to love was wrong. They told us to love was wrong, that was the devil's work. But yet, these priests and nuns could hug and kiss. And we couldn't even hug our own brothers. We couldn't even hold them and tell them we loved them. It took me a lot of years before I was able to tell my boys I loved them. Three years it took me to realize it, though, you know, of torture and pain, you know, being strapped at a young you know, I, I lost my childhood when I first got there and never knew what it was like to have parents. Still hurts. Sorry about that. Sorry, you don't apologize. But I never knew my mother and still don't today. I couldn't remember any good times that were there uh -huh. because I was being um, punished for things I'd never done. Like what kind of punishment? Um, punishment by restraining me to the bed, by putting a restrainer on me and holding me down in the bed. Um, I had bed problems as wetting the bed and they would tie me in bed and put an electric underneath my sheet so that when I did wet I would electrocute myself. I'd seen them burn hands of kids when they're three years old and five, with a little spike in their hand and like that, like a shock thing. Electric shock yeah. device? 
Why did they shock the kids? Because the kids wouldn't listen to the Catholic priests. He used it on my brother's penis. He electrocuted his penis there till my brother passed out. And he was laughing, brother. My brother said he was laughing while he was doing it. You'd like to see him in pain, I guess. Then the police force, I, I was involved in a few investigations regarding the victims of the residential school where one particular individual had went home in the summer and learned how to speak his own language and his dad had taught him how to carve. <coughs> he went back to school. He, uh, he, uh, he continued doing this, speaking his own language and carving. And the teacher caught him and took his knife away and broke his carving up. And, and he took a pencil and he drove it right through his hand. And you still see the scar where he drove the pencil right through his, his hand. Then there was other times where they put us in a tub and then they had a bucket of snakes, you know, them black and yellow snakes. And they'd throw that in the tub while we're having a bath. And the snakes are, they can't stand that hot water. They're trying to crawl all over our bodies, trying to get away from that hot water. They'd all just curl up because they die immediately. And those are some of the horrifying things that they'd done to us, to discipline us, to keep quiet. What had I got myself into? My whole world was being turned upside down. I had a young family to support. My children were still only infants. I couldn't put them at risk, which I would be if I let those stories be spoken from my pulpit. I didn't know what to believe or who to believe. I know I didn't want to believe these stories. Well, when you went home at night with your family, your wife and two daughters, did you talk about this? Did they talk? Was this supper material to talk about? No, I couldn't really share this around my kids or really my wife at the time. Um... You know, it, for one thing, it was told in confidence, and another thing was uh, it was a nightmare. Once again, that is just a small sampling of the information contained in that documentary, Unrepentant. And again, I would suggest that my listeners watch it in its entirety to find out more about this horrific series of events that took place since the founding of the Canadian residential school system in the 19th century. Of course, the terms genocide and holocaust are not ones to be employed lightly. They bring with them, of course, the connotations of the Nazi holocaust in Eastern Europe in the 1930s and World War II. Although, of course, there have been numerous other cases of genocide and mass slaughter throughout human history, right through and up to today. But since we're not used to thinking of the treatment of native Canadians in this context perhaps some fleshing out of the idea that this was indeed a genocide, a an intentional culling of the native population of Canada is in order. And just a small hint of that can come from this article from narconews.com from February 16th, 2009, Auschwitz in the U.S. and Canada, Indian Boarding Schools. Quote, Russell Means and Kevin Annette spoke on the systematic genocide of Indian people in the United States and Canada, pointing out the murder of Indian children in boarding schools, mass graves, and generations of trauma and early death resulting from the long-standing abuse which has been hidden in history. Speaking on Red Town Radio, Annette, a minister exposing the crimes of the churches and government of Canada, 
said Indian residential schools in Canada were more murderous than Auschwitz. Annette said the death rate at Auschwitz was 15 to 30 percent. One third of the people were killed. In Canada, the death rate of Indian children in residential schools was at least twice that of Auschwitz. The residential schools were more intentionally murderous. Annette and Means spoke on Redtown Radio, hosted by Brenda Golden Muskogee from Oklahoma, on Sunday, February 15th. Means, revealing the threat of colonization and genocide, said Americans are proving Einstein's definition of insanity. Einstein said insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Means described how Indian people have been co-opted to believe the lives of the U.S. and Canadian governments through colonization. What these boarding schools did was to create this insanity. They have convinced the prisoners of these two governments, of Canada and the United States, to accept things the way they are and hope things will change. One of the facts hidden from history was the forced sterilization of Indian women. Means said it is documented that between 1972 and 1976, the United States forcibly sterilized 42% of Indian women. In Puerto Rico, the U.S. forcibly sterilized 35% of Puerto Rican women. There was also horrendous physical abuse. In Chiloco Indian School in Oklahoma, Means described one teenager with a disabled arm. In Chiloco, children were handcuffed over pipes in the basement and left to hang there. Chiloco and Intermountain Indian School in Utah were among the worst boarding schools, and AIM, the American Indian Movement, led protest to close those in the 1970s. There's still a killing field at Haskell, Means said. Means said at Haskell Boarding School now Haskell Indian Nations University, there is a mass grave of Indian children beneath a building. A building was built over the mass grave to hide the evidence, and the college denied the existence of the grave, he said. In southeastern BC, Annette said a golf course was built over the site of a mass grave of Indian children. The government of Canada convinced the band council to go along with this. End quote. Of course, the Nazi Holocaust is not brought up in this context merely for its shock value. There's an actual historical connection, documented by Pulitzer Prize-winning Adolf Hitler biographer John Toland, who wrote in his 1976 work, Adolf Hitler, quote, Hitler's concept of concentration camps, as well as the practicability of genocide, owed much, so he claimed, to his studies of English and United States history. He admired the camps for Boer prisoners in South Africa and for the Indians in the Wild West, and often praised to his inner circle the efficiency of America's extermination by starvation and uneven combat of the red savages who could not be tamed by captivity. End quote. Nor are claims of forced sterilization of Native American and Native Canadian women idle speculation either. Of course, we documented that in our episode 36 of the Corbett Report podcast, The Republic of Lakota, and I strongly recommend that my listeners go and listen to that episode or re-listen to that episode to re-familiarize themselves with such things as the Family Planning Act, which George H.W. Bush, then United Nations Ambassador for the U.S., implemented using U.S. government funds 
to sterilize between 25 and 50 percent of Native American women of childbearing age. Again, there is even more that is documented in that documentary, Unrepentant, and in many other sources of information as well, that point to an unspeakable atrocity that has been perpetrated on the Native peoples of both Canada and America since, indeed, the founding of these countries and well before that. In order to start uncovering this hidden history, I contacted Kevin Annette in BC earlier this week. Our conversation is now available online on the Corbett Report homepage at CorbettReport.com under the Interviews tab, and of course I would recommend my listeners go and listen to that interview. But right now, let's listen to a clip from that interview with Kevin Annette. Well, certainly a genocide is, a, is an, probably the strongest charge that could be leveled against any government or, or state actor. What, what do you think is the basis for that charge, rather than simply uh, putting this up to neglect or abuse? Well, there was a plan in place, clearly, uh, to kill off uh, Aboriginal people. Um, and, you know, it's not only in the comments that, that politicians have made over the years, but, but um, kind of inherent in the entire Indian Act and in the policy of government and churches in Canada, just like in the United States, there was the understanding that Native people had to either convert to Christianity or they were expendable. Um, and that was demonstrated in a lot of statements which are in my book and in the film on Repentant. But also, um, in just the proof in the actual numbers, we know that in a period of about uh, the last three decades in the 1800s in, on the West Coast here in British Columbia, most of the Native communities fell by over 90%, their population was, they were completely decimated by smallpox and tuberculosis. And we have numerous eyewitnesses who have described uh, the practices of uh, the delivery of smallpox-laden blankets, of you know people who witnessed children being uh, housed in dormitories where they're all dying of tuberculosis and never treated, and um, the sterilization programs, which were quite uh, widespread all over the West Coast, uh, right here in Nanaimo, where I live on Vancouver Island, there was a hospital, the Nanaimo Indian Hospital, where eyewitnesses describe, you know, children and, and women especially being regularly sterilized uh, and subject to medical experiments and that. So all of that shows, as is defined in the United Nations Convention on Genocide, it all indicates an intent to destroy, you know, a people. And uh, by all the criteria of the, that convention on genocide, Canada and its churches are guilty of genocide. There comes a time in encountering this information in which I think everyone has to step back and just ask the simple question, why? Why did these nightmares take place? And obviously to raise the specter of genocide is to talk about something orders of magnitude more than just neglect or abuse. There must be some sort of motivating ideology behind something like this. Well, I think there was two factors. One was simply a desire to get the lands and resources. And like in many places in the world, the way you do that is to drive off, destroy, and then marginalize the indigenous population, the people who occupy the lands and resources. That was clearly, you know, a, a main motive for all this. But even more basically, in the very ideology of, of, the, of the cultures that conquered here in North America, um, I, there's this uh, Cherokee scholar called Steve Newcomb, and he describes the ideology as uh, some, what he calls Christian superior dominion. And that is the idea that Christians, and the church in particular, uh, are uh, superior uh, to other people in the world and have the right to take their land. 
This was enunciated in papal laws as far back as the 1400s. There's a very infamous one called uh, Romanus Pontifex, which the Pope passed in 1452, the Bull of, of 1494. These were laws that said non-Christians do not have the right to their own land, and Christian kings have the duty and the right to go in and take those lands from the non-Christian, what who call, they called pa- uh, pagans and Saracens. And every European nation passed those kinds of laws, which basically said Christians have the obligation to go in and um, make those people Christian and take their land from them because they, they don't have the right, uh, they're not even considered people under the law because they're not Christian. So it's a combination of that economic motive of empire and the uh, religious imperialism of Christendom, which combined to cause this massive uh, genocide. As a matter of fact, here in North America, it was the largest mass murder of people in human history, yet a lot of Canadians and Americans still can't get their mind around the fact that it was genocide. Well, certainly, as, as I'm sure you've come across during your research, at the time that the residential school system was being established and as the genocidal institutions started grafting themselves onto the native, the native populations in this tyrannical overlay, the pseudoscience of eugenics was booming in the civilized Western world with the ideas of racial hygiene and social Darwinism and forced sterilization. Can you speak to what such junk sciences and racist ideologies do to the mindset of someone who wants to believe that their total control over others is actually a benefit to society as a whole? Well, I think it's all pervasive, and it's not even something, because it's, it's kind of a water we swim in, and we're taught from day one. We're not even aware we're, uh, we're uh, propagating that ideology. Um, you know, there's a very good book that's been written about this called War Against the Weak uh, by Edwin Black, uh, and it's subtitled America's Plan to Create a Master Race. And it looks about the, at the origin of the eugenics philosophy in the United States in the, in the latter 1800s. And it was basically the idea that, well, the human race, as you mentioned, is divided into various um, races, and the so-called ag- Anglo-Saxon people are, the, uh, are at the apex of that, that uh, pyramid. And uh, we have to protect ourselves against so-called racial defilement. This is the language that the early eugenicists and Adolf Hitler used. Uh, there was a common language on both sides of the Atlantic. And the idea was, well, we have to perfect ourselves by not only getting rid of so-called inferior uh, races, but those within our own race who are, quote, defective, like mentally defective people, uh, people morally unfit, like unwed mothers, political dissidents, people like that. All of those people should be stopped from breeding. And that was the, the ideology behind the, the eugenics movement. It, it uh, manifested in a lot of laws in the United States and Canada, um, which uh, allowed any group targeted to be involuntarily sterilized. There was over uh, 40 states in America passed uh, sterilization laws aimed uh, primarily at the what they call the feeble-minded, uh, people with a lower IQ. But it was broadened. In Canada, the sterilization laws were broadened to include uh, Native people, uh, other racial groups, um, you know, as I mentioned, uh, people deemed morally or politically undesirable. And um, it was widely used against Native people. And to give you an example, uh, over uh, one-third of all Native people in Alberta who were, uh, I'm sorry, over one-third of the people sterilized in Alberta hospitals were Aboriginal, even though they were only 2% of the population. In on British Columbia, there were three hospitals set up here by the United Church and the federal government and the Catholics to uh, target Native people who were traditionalists, that is, who were still living on their land, who refused to become Christian, and who were chiefs, that, you know, the traditional uh, leadership of the indigenous communities, they were all targeted for sterilizations. And these sterilizations continue today. Um, 
through vaccination programs and other uh, other ways of you know under the guise of public health, definitely that these chief's families are still being targeted. So, it, you know, in other words, it's an ideology that doesn't stop; it just changes its rhetoric. But the aim is really the same. Well, expand on that for a moment. What do you mean that it's still continuing under the guise of uh, vaccination programs, for example? Well, to give you an example, um, one of the men interviewed in our uh, our film, uh, Steve Sampson, he's a descended uh, here on Vancouver Island, uh, in the mid-area of Vancouver Island, there's a, the people here were known as the Cowichan, the Cowichan Nation. And he's uh, Steve Sampson is a traditional Cowichan uh, chief. His family were forced off their land by the Catholic missionaries, uh, displaced, and uh, in the 1980s, both of his sons were abducted, uh, basically arrested under the, uh, false charges, and put in foster homes. And from there, they were sent to the Victoria General Hospital, where they were both given uh, vasectomies. And um, he, there was no other rationale for that besides the fact that Steve Sampson and his family were uh, traditional chiefs, and that they, they were the enemies of the local band council, which is a government-funded native group that really administers the Indian Act and, and the genocide uh, on behalf of the Canadian government. Well, you know, the, uh, those kinds of stories are being repeated all across Canada. I've actually documented um, dozens of stories of people who continue to um, face that. There was a Native woman who was about to charge the United Church with killing her sister, um, and I, I don't want to mention her name over the air right now because her, her lawsuit is pending, but in 1987, she was told by the social welfare agency in Vancouver as a Native woman, that if she wanted to see her children again, they were living in white foster homes, if she wanted to see them, she had to agree to be uh, sterilized, to have her tubes tied. And she agreed to that in order to see her children again. So this use of sterilization is something that uh, welfare agencies and the government uh, continue to use all the time. Kevin Annette of HiddenFromHistory.org And so it is once again that by an exploration of the hidden history of this genocide and holocaust of the Native Canadian and Native American populations in the residential school system, we hit upon that ideology which we've encountered time and time and time again before on the Corbett Report podcast, eugenics. Eugenics, of course, being the master race philosophy that holds that certain people, by their very genetic makeup, are in fact genetically predisposed to being rulers and controllers of society. That they have risen to their places of prominence in the social ladder because they are genetically superior to others, and for that very reason, are the ones to whom the future of humanity should be entrusted. And of course, in their view, the future of humanity would be the creation of a subservient class devoted only to serving the world state. The rest of humanity, of course, would be culled as needed. As I say, we've covered this time and time and time again before on the Corbett Report podcast, and I know that my regular listeners will need no explanation of what eugenics is or how it manifests itself throughout 20th century history and, of course, all the way up to today. In fact, I know that this information to a certain extent is making it out into the world, but unfortunately, there are still many people out there who don't see what the dangers of eugenics and the eugenics philosophy really are. In fact, I know that there are people out there who truly believe that eugenics can be a positive, a good thing for humanity and the furthering of the human species. I know this because if you go to the Corbett Report's video on eugenics entitled Eugenics on YouTube, you will find 
that in fact there are numerous comments by viewers of that video suggesting that eugenics is a good thing and it's such a great thing that heroes like Margaret Sanger the founder of Planned Parenthood, wrote about how she wanted to exterminate the Negro population through her abortion programs. Or how Jacques Cousteau wrote that it was a sad truth that hundreds of thousands of us needed to die every day in order for Mother Earth to survive. Of course, I can only speculate as to the reasons why any sane, rational individual would hold the belief that this is a good thing for humanity. But at my most cynical level, I can only guess that there are those likely middle-class white North Americans who believe that because they are Caucasian and of European descent, they are going to be spared from the culling of eugenics. They are, of course, going to be among those chosen few who are going to lead the transhuman revolution and continue the development of the human species. Of course, my listeners will know that to be a lie, in that all of the eugenics policies that are enacted, for example, on the native populations, are also planned for the general population. On the topic of sterilization, of course, we covered that in episode 74 of the podcast, The Inbred Elite's Millionaire Plan, in which it just so happens that many of the chemicals which even in the 1930s scientists knew were estrogen-mimicking compounds that would cause men to become more effeminate and sperm counts to be reduced. Yes, these very chemicals were then inserted into plastics that we use on a daily basis, including babies' bottles. Of course, we also know about the chemical dumbing down of society, which we covered in episode 73. We also know about the vaccines and how they're being used as silent weapons, as covered in our audio documentary from episode 66. We know about how food is being used as a weapon, both from Codex Alimentarius, which we covered in episode 59, and also various other angles of food as a weapon, which we covered in episode 41. And we know about GMO foods and the crisis that that is creating in our food supply at the moment. We know all of these various attack angles which the elites are using to engineer society in the direction they choose, which is, of course, in the direction of culling the human population. But if all of the information that we've covered so far hasn't been enough, perhaps the information in today's real news stories will finally get some people's attention. Accidental contamination of vaccine with live avian flu virus, virtually impossible. And they were shipping this out. But a subcontractor did due diligence, because so many times they don't irradiate the regular flu vaccine, right, and it hurts people, that they tested it on ferrets, as they're supposed to do, and if they haven't radiated it right, it makes the ferrets sick and they send it back. Well, guess what? It killed the ferrets, and so they tested the vaccine, and it had bioweapon in it. This was about to be shipped out, and in fact, they're not even clear it may have been shipped out. Do you understand? Do you understand? People say, oh, this is scary fear-mongering, Alex. This is the real world, ladies and gentlemen. Governments killed hundreds of millions of people last century. Zbigniew Brzezinski, who runs the White House Foreign Policy, brags in two of his books that the U.S. funded Pol Pot, and he's proud of what they did. That guy killed 30% of his country's population, 3 million. 
Check papers question whether contaminated Baxter vaccine was attempt to provoke pandemic. Mainstream national papers in the Czech Republic. You ought to go read these stories. They're all linked here. Up on Infowars.com and PrisonPlanet.com. It sounds like I wrote them. They're saying there's no way this is on purpose. What on earth is going on? And they've got all these scientists who are experts on vaccine production going, this is on purpose. What's it going to take for some of you to wake up? Dying? Watching whole cities die? What is it going to take for you to get it through your head that the New World Order wants you dead? What does the back cover of my film, Endgame, Blueprint for Global Enslavement, say? They want you dead. Czech newspapers are questioning if the shocking discovery of vaccines contaminated with the deadly avian flu virus, which were distributed to 18 countries by the American company Baxter, were part of a conspiracy to provoke a pandemic. This was through its Austrian subsidiary. The claim holds weight because according to the very laboratory protocols that are routine for vaccine makers, mixing a live virus biological weapon with vaccine material by accident is virtually impossible. See, this this avian flu had nothing to do with the facility, nothing to do with the human vaccine for what they're guessing you know, next year's flu is going to be, nothing to do with it. And it's in level three bioweapon lab, they admit that, where the people don't even touch it. You know, they're using robotic arms. It's in chambers. They load the live virus in. They breed it up in deadly cultures. Then they radiate it and ship it out. They damage the DNA. So you just had a, a autoimmune response, supposedly. You don't have the full viral spread. And they put accelerants into it to accelerate an autoimmune response, and that's associated with the uh, brain inflammation and retardation in children, not just the mercury. Mercury does brain damage the children, but it itself is a red herring compared to the inflammation, according to the brain surgeons and scientists we've had on here, countless ones. The company that released contaminated flu virus material from a plant in Austria confirmed Friday that the experimental product contained live, live, H5N1 avian flu viruses, reports the Canadian press, Toronto Sun, on and on and on. Baxter flu vaccines contaminated with H5N1, otherwise known as the human form of avian flu, one of the most deadly biological weapons on Earth, with a at least 60% kill rate, were received by labs in the Czech Republic, Germany, and Slovenia. Initially, Baxter attempted to stonewall questions by invoking trade secrets and refused to reveal how the vaccines were contaminated with H5N1. After increased pressure, then they claimed that pure H5N1 bird flu batches were sent by accident. This was seemingly an attempt to quickly change the story and hide the fact that the accidental contamination of a vaccine with a deadly bioagent like avian flu is virtually impossible, and the only way it could have happened was by willful gross criminal negligence. And mainstream news is saying that, not just me. Go read the Toronto Sun and others. Go read the checks. They're going, this is insane. Now, stop right there. That isn't even the evidence, as damning as that is. That is secondary. That is tertiary. That is corollary. That is on the side of the road. What is in the middle of the road? The instructions they gave the companies for the mixture of the falsely labeled vaccine was the exact complex preparation to create a mutagen. 
That's what gave you the 1918 Spanish flu that killed at least 50 million people. It was combined to mutate between the normal, extremely airborne, extremely contagious strain of flu with the bird flu to make it highly airborne and highly contagious. Are you starting to hear what I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen? According to... See, see, see... If this would have gotten out and may have, we don't know. See, instead of your child just throwing up for two days, they die. They die. They die. You die. I die. We die. Then they take those FEMA plastic coffins they've got stored all over the country, and they come in in bio suits, and they stick you in them. I'm going to stop right there. Remember in my film Endgame, remember Dr. Eric Pianchi at UT saying he wants 90% of the American people and people of the world to die. He can't wait till. Ebola becomes airborne and kills 90% of the world population, and then he's ready for him and his family to die. But that isn't the issue. It's that he went to the Texas Academy of Scientists. This was in the news. And when he said all this and projected with a PowerPoint huge skulls on the wall, he got a standing ovation after standing ovation. Because if you go to the biology departments of any major university, more than half of the top scientists at these facilities... And doing the research labs will tell you there's too many people and humans are a disease. Anybody who's been in biology knows this. Anybody who's had fellow students writing their Ph.D. thesis papers, it's all about how humans are a disease and have to be gotten rid of. When my dad was at UT, in high school, he was sent there as part of an advanced curriculum for gifted students. And they tested the smartest kids in Texas and took the top six and pulled them aside and said... We want you to be part of a eugenics program. We're going to reduce the world's population. My dad never told me that till he was at my office watching Endgame before it came out. We were having an argument in the car with my mother, and he said, no, it's all true, honey. They told me all this in college. You see, it's everywhere. This is who they are. They're in the positions of power. The FBI did go question Pianca. Because there he is with access to these laboratories. UT's got a level three bioweapons lab. They've got a nuclear reactor. Every time I mention that, people laugh. Yes, there's there's two nuke reactors in Austin. And down in Galveston, there's a level three bioweapons lab that's messing with level four bioweapons. And it isn't just him. It's Prince Charles, Prince Philip, Jacques Cousteau, Ted Turner, you know, Peter Singer, all these top people. That's all they talk about. They want you dead. There is no more succinct explanation of the direction in which society is being taken by the elite who hold the levers of power, including, of course, the private central banks, which they can use to print money out of nothing or take it away from the economy with a snap of their fingers. The stakes could not be higher the Holocaust that we saw take place in the Native Canadian and Native American populations in the 20th century is exactly what is being planned and implemented for the general population right now. So whether you believe in karma as some sort of spiritual reckoning or not, there's no doubt that what goes around comes around, and what we allow to happen to anyone in our society can and will happen to us. The only option, of course, is to resist all of the forms of control 
through which we are led to accept our own enslavement and culling. The most insidious part of the million-year plan of the inbred elite is that we are brainwashed on a daily basis through all sorts of attack vectors, but of course through the controlled corporate media, to accept what is happening to us, or to accept all of it as mere coincidence. The time for making justifications for this system is over. The time to act is now. So in order to understand how to act against such a system, I'd like to turn to someone who has spent his entire life doing that. Someone from the Native American community who survived the institutionalized racism and indeed genocide committed against Native Americans, not only survived but thrived as an activist and a leader against tyranny. I refer to Splitting the Sky, who now resides in British Columbia, Canada, and is well known as a dedicated 9-11 truth activist. But he has led an amazing and incredible life, including, of course, taking part in the Attica State Prison Rebellion in 1971. And he was the only person to be charged for his part in that uprising. In 1979, he was finally released from the New York State penal system, and eventually made his way to British Columbia, where he took part in the 1990s in the Gustafson Lake standoff. He was also in New York the day before 9-11, staying just two blocks away from the World Trade Center Twin Towers. And since that fateful day, he has been diligently researching the financial connections and the corporate players behind 9-11, who enabled 9-11 to take place. He is a powerful, passionate and articulate speaker of truths in the face of tyranny and injustice, and he is a shining example of what we can do to resist tyranny. To that end, I would like to encourage my listeners, all of my listeners, to go to the interview section of CorbettReport.com and download the interview that I conducted this week with Splitting the Sky. The interview itself, clocking in at over one and a half hours, is by far the longest interview I've ever conducted for the Corbett Report, and in many respects one of the most powerful. Splitting the Sky is an engaging speaker who really has led a remarkable life. So again, I would strongly recommend that my listeners download that interview and take a listen to it in its entirety. Of course, they can find out more about Splitting the Sky at his homepage at splittingthesky.net. But right now, I'd like to take a listen to part of the interview that I conducted with Splitting the Sky from the very end of our interview, in which we talk about his 9-11 truth activism and how his experiences of the Native American genocide have informed his activism and propelled him to resist even harder. All right, uh, Splitting the Sky, finally today, um, we've talked about a number of issues, but trying to draw this together. Today on the Corbett Report, of course, we're discussing the, the, the terrible uh, travesty, the genocide that has taken place in the Canadian residential school system over the past several decades, and, and the terrible pain that, and trauma that's been inflicted on the native peoples of Canada. And of course, uh, y y your activism is is one of those those rays of hope that we can take out of such terrible tragedy. And I want to, I want, I'd like to hear you speak to the idea of taking a terrible tragedy like the institutionalized nature of the system that has 
that has oppressed Native peoples. And, and taking that anger and putting it into positive, constructive activism towards building a better society. Well, you know, that is a, it's a very deep-rooted thing there, uh, James, that you're, uh, you post to me here. Um, and of course, it has personal, very personal implications. Uh, you know, I, every time I think about residential schools, I think about, uh, the many nights I laid inside of my cots and, and, and I listened to young native boys and girls, you know, uh, you know, laying in their bed in the dormitory at night and then all of a sudden, you know, you hear the screams of young boys or young girls being ripped off sexually and attacked. And then you you look at the horror of the situation and how people were beaten, their hair cut off, and then their tongues, needles put through our tongues and taped up in our mouths, taped up and thrown into closets for days at times. Um, it's a, it was a form of torture that was produced on young, innocent children that were just literally taken from our homes and put into these institutions. And uh, when you think about the kind of abuse that went on there, and then you think about years down the road, you know, that, uh, that all of these atrocities, and even the murders and killings of young kids, young children that were in these schools, and uh, having to fight to come through it in order to talk about it today. And I think about all those families that lost children this way, and that of, of the many children, thousands and thousands of children that were sexually brutalized and beaten physically, and that the kind of horror that these people still live with to today, and that the stories are horrible horror stories beyond belief. And um, and then you see that kind of uh, you see that kind of um, sexual abuse and that and sexual aggression and attack and and uh, the the sort of predators that have been created that have gone back into their communities and done almost the identical things that were done to them. And then of course there were a lot of people that went through the healing, uh, through the sweat lodge and ceremonies to find their way back and to 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 release that from themselves to become a, a better, stronger person, to become a human being again, to find their way home, to re to to to, to find their own souls, their own spiritual nature. You know it. Um, you know you can you can go through that kind of uh, you can go through that and you can carry those kind of experiences with you and you can become a very bitter and a hard person and you can and you can do the same things that uh, that the oppressor did that did this to you, or you can take from that experience and you can then dismiss it through ceremony into the world of spirit and say to yourself you know but this I don't own this because this is something that was done to me. So I am just throwing this back into the wind because I don't own this and I can't carry this with me because it's, it's destroying me from within. So rather than allow that to destroy me from within, I'm going to get past that and I'm going to become the kind of person that I want to be that, uh, that is in accordance with what I believe is natural law. 
and that uh, to become a person that is a positive, loving human being, and that we can build together against this form of system and this form of apartheid and this form of atrocities that are committed from these systems that are not good to indigenous people. But then again, we also have to realize, too, in our search and our research and uh, for understanding why these things are done. I came, I, I, I was surprised to find out in my research on residential schools and boarding schools that this same kind of process happened to thousands, hundreds of thousands of Europeans in Great Britain. So it's not only uh, indigenous, but it was carried over from Great Britain. It was done to, the, uh, to, 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 to white people in Europe before it was done to us. So it is something that we have to understand that this form of dehumanizing process that was done systemically through sexual and physical abuse was done in order to make us willing subjects man, to an authoritarian regime that only seeks man, to continue its interest in class, its class interest. We've got to do away with class interests. We've got to identify the real criminals, like the federal. We've got to outlaw the federal, uh, uh, the, the federal reserve system or the federal reserve crime family syndicate. We have to get back to our roots, and we've got to be able to understand that um, some very heavy earth changes coming soon. Prophecies have foreseen a very hard time in the time that we're in right now. We had better get ourselves together and get realigned, man, with natural law before we're all obliterated by unnatural occurrences. You know, I remember reading years ago the prophecies of Dagonaguida, and it was talking about, uh, you know, the necessity to intervene on the sort of things. Right now, we even saw that 9-11 situation and the, and, and the murders of 3,000 innocent souls that are crying out for justice right now. And then the prophecies of the Ganawita talks about the return of the visionary of the Iroquois people. At this time right here, he said, well, all these catastrophes were beginning to happen. He said that all of a sudden, he said that there would be this, you know, there would be this war between between the red serpent and the white serpent, symbolizing capitalist and communist types uh, nations, and that would start at sea. And that uh, when these nations would start out in a, a, a low heated battle, and then eventually it would get so hot it would uh, escalate into, you know, to a war. The battle would cause the oceans to boil and the fish to turn on their stomachs and the trees to burn from the top down and bugs of un, un, unbelievable creatures would come from the cracks in the earth because the earth was so hot. Well, what the Ganawiru was describing was the uh, a nuclear war and it, and and it's important to understand now that you have to understand that many of those people that were in the federal reserve that I'm talking about the financiers are these same financiers like the Rothschilds of Rockefellers Soros uh, Brzezinski's, all these people are the same people that financed Obama's uh, administration's presidential campaign and Obama has an interest, man. It's not a coincidence that we've escalated, that he's escalated the troops into Afghanistan by 17,000 because they, they intend to seize that pipeline. And they intend to get it before Russia get it, gets it, as well as establishing the military defense system. This could cause for that, which Tiganawita saw, that uh, this battle that would begin slowing and would intensify and take us into a nuclear nuclear situation. 
a nuclear war, World War III. And this is the reason why I'm so intent on doing what I'm doing, because I have children that have to come through this time. i got young children. Uh, I believe that, uh, that the reason why it's so important for 9-11 truthers to expose 9-11 as an inside false flag operation on par with that which was done with the with the uh, left left Wanza, uh, uh, the sinking of the left Wanza, bringing uh, uh, the U.S. into uh, Britain's war with Germany, uh, uh, as well as the um, the sinking of the USS Liberty, which uh, uh, in 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 the Six Day War, <clears throat> and many other false flag operations that have happened throughout history. And the reason that it was done, the reason that it's important for us to expose 9-11 as an inside job is in, in order to intervene on the progression towards a nuclear war. And the only way, this, this unbridled war on terror, even though the, uh, the, the Obama administration basically is stating that, that, uh, that uh, the war on terror has ended, it has not ended. It cannot end if you're putting 17,000 more troops and three battalions into Afghanistan to secure a pipeline that's going to trigger the international incident. Um, I wonder to myself in closing, how could these people cause so many casualties, millions of people dying and being murdered in this wave of what's happening, and the worst is yet to come. How could all of this happen unless, in fact, somebody at the higher end of the echelons understands that something else is coming? And I remember Tagana saying that at the time when all of this fury begins to happen in this world, he said, when this begins to happen, the people will be blindsided by a resilient ball in, in the sky, a light in the sky. And then I thought to myself, geez, what could that light be in this prophecy? And then it hit me. It hit me about this thing that is supposed to be passing through the earth here within the next couple of years. It's a thing called Planet X, the planet Nibirus. We better look at that soon because that's the only thing in my mind that could justify for the power elite to say to themselves, well, you know, we allow so many millions and millions of people's back to go down and planned, consorted, or unplanned and unconsorted uh, population, depopulation control or depopulation process. And so what I'm thinking that there is going to be this great upheaval going through with this planet going through, and one would need to look at that in order to understand the prophecies, the, ful the fulfilling of prophecies coming through right now. So I, I just add that in there because uh, this is the way I see it from an indigenous perspective. Uh, splitting the Sky, it's been a, an incredible talk with you today, and uh, we've covered so much information, and so much of what you've said is, is absolutely vital, so I certainly hope that my listeners have taken it to heart. And I, I'd really like to, uh, to talk to you again in the future, and um, talk to you about some of your activism again in the future, so I hope you'll join us again. But for those listeners who want to find out more about you in the meantime, please give out your website one more time. Okay, it's www splittingthesky.net and you can also call me or you can write me at uh, email me splittingthesky at yahoo.com and then the telephone number is 250 as well as myself 
1-800-273-0562. Please call. We need assistance. We need help organizing this. We need you to help and contribute towards this effort. Uh, give me a call, and uh, I appreciate hearing from everybody and anybody. All right. Well, we appreciate hearing from you and splitting the sky. Thank you again for taking the time to talk to us today. And thank you very much, James, for the uh, service that you provide. Once again, I would strongly recommend that my listeners go and listen to that interview in its entirety, as it truly is an audio journey through even just a small section of what is truly a remarkable life. In that interview, he recounts his experiences in the Attica State Rebellion and Uprising, and it is truly a fascinating story. Regardless of what one makes of things like Native American prophecy, or things like Nibiru or Planet X, which in some cases may be used as an excuse by some people to stop doing what they're doing, to stop acting, to wait for an outside event to occur to change the planet. It's absolutely clear from my conversation with Splitting the Sky that he is an engaged, informed, and active citizen who is standing up and taking an active part in the Infowar, informing others of the tyranny that is taking shape around them, and by his example, showing others how to resist that tyranny. I encourage my listeners to go and listen to both my interview with Kevin Annette and my interview with Splitting the Sky in their entirety, and of course to visit SplittingTheSky.net and HiddenFromHistory.org, but also to take a part in helping activists like Kevin Annette and Splitting the Sky in their efforts. Of course, listeners can find out more about Kevin Annette's Disestablishing Genocide speaking tour by visiting HiddingFromHistory.org, and of course people can find out more about the activism planned for George Bush's visit to Calgary by contacting Splitting the Sky or Calgary911Truth.org or various other groups. But regardless of how you do it, the point is to become active and to do something positive, because we are facing nothing less than genocide. That's it for this week. This is James Corbett thanking you for joining me this week and asking you to join me again next week for another edition of the Corbett Report. It is my pleasure and privilege at this very, very solemn moment to introduce a young man and his wife who saw fit to put down in music and lyrics so that it will never be forgotten in our country by anyone the tragedy of Attica State. There's no more that I can say, ladies and gentlemen. I would like to introduce to you John and Yoko Lennon. Hello, huh? I'd just like to say it's an honor and a pleasure to be here at the Apollo and for the reasons we're all here. This song Yoko and I wrote is called Attica State.